Hello and welcome to the Oasis Church podcast. This episode is part of our series Shepherd King, exploring the life of David. Together we'll be following the story of someone known as a man after God's own heart, through his highs and his lows, from field to wilderness to palace. As we do, we'll discover how, in both his successes and his failures, David points us to Jesus, the true king come to change everything for everyone. Thanks for joining us. 1 Samuel chapter 8 As Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons to be judges over Israel. Joel and Abijah, his oldest sons, held court in Beersheba. But they were not like their father, for they were greedy for money. They accepted bribes and perverted justice. Finally, all the elders of Israel met at Ramah to discuss the matter with Samuel. Look, they told him, you are now old and your sons are not like you. Give us a king to judge us like all the other nations have. Samuel was displeased with their request and went to the Lord for guidance. Do everything they say to you, the Lord replied, for they are rejecting me, not you. They don't want me to be their king any longer. Ever since I brought them out from Egypt, they've continually abandoned me and followed other gods. And now they're giving you the same treatment. Do as they ask, but solemnly warn them about the way a king will reign over them. So Samuel passed on the Lord's warning to the people who were asking him for a king. This is how a king will reign over you, Samuel said. The king will draft your sons and assign them to his chariots and charioteers, making them run before his chariots. Some will be generals and captains in his army. Some will be forced to plough in his fields and harvest his crops. And some will make his weapons and chariot equipment. The king will take your daughters from you and force them to cook and bake and make perfumes for him. He will take away the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his own officials. He will take a tenth of your grain and your grape harvest and distribute it amongst his officers and attendants. He'll take your male and female slaves and demand the finest of your cattle and donkeys for his own use. He will demand a tenth of your flocks and you will be his slaves. When that day comes, you will beg for relief from this king you're demanding, but then the Lord will not help you. But the people refused to listen to Samuel's warning. Even so, we still want a king, they said. We want to be like the nations around us. Our king will judge us and lead us into battle. So Samuel repeated to the Lord what the people had said, and the Lord replied, Do as they say, and give them a king. Then Samuel agreed and sent the people home. Hello and good morning, everyone. Uh, My name is Rich, and as Mike has kind of teed us up for, I have the privilege of kicking off this brand new series together. But I want to start with a question for us. What makes a good leader? What makes a good leader? Because we see all kinds of different types of leaders in the world around us, don't we? Some of them were shown uh, on the intro video before Rebecca read for us. But what makes a good one? I wonder what you think. Is it charisma? The ability to motivate and inspire others? Dynamism? Their willingness to be the first to do something. Maybe we look for appearance, their physical impressiveness in beauty uh, or stature. All these things ruling me out already very, very quickly. 
Maybe we look for longevity, someone who's stayed the course for many years. Maybe it's reputation, what others say about them. Maybe it's authenticity, their willingness to be open about their strengths and their weaknesses. Or maybe, to quote the memorial that many of us in the room will have walked past on our way in, their moral excellencies, their commitment to living in a way that is beyond reproach. Or maybe what you look for in a leader is something else entirely. Well, leadership is something that's going to have a big focus this year. In 2024, around 70% of the world's democracies will hold elections, which could result in transfers of power in our nation and in the world. It could result in leaders rising up who embody, to a greater or lesser degree, none, some, any or all of those characteristics. And so because of that, there's going to be a lot of discussion in the media, in society, in the world at large about leadership, about what good leadership looks like, about who we should have as our leaders, about power and authority and responsibility. And so over the next few months, we're going to be exploring the life of a leader in the Bible who doesn't always get things right, as we'll go on to see, but whose life, perhaps more than any other, points in both his successes and his failures to the kind of leadership that Jesus models, and about how, therefore, we should think about leadership, both in the world and in our own lives, in the unique context where each of us are leading and being led. And David's story is one that encapsulates how we are to live when nobody else is watching. It encapsulates how we're to live when everybody else is watching. How we live in what feel like wilderness moments where we're just barely managing to stay afloat. How we deal with opposition and envy and success. How we cultivate hearts of worship and thankfulness, whatever life is looking like. How we respond to failures in our own lives and in the lives of others how we build life-giving friendships of depth and authenticity, how we resist temptation, despondency, and the desire for revenge, how we navigate dysfunctional families and raise children who grow up knowing and loving the Lord, and how we finish well, both in individual seasons and in life itself. So we're going to be exploring the life of David, the shepherd king. And ultimately, his story is one that shows us that God is overflowing with kindness and generosity, that human frailty cannot derail his plans and his purposes, and that the one that David's life is pointing to, Jesus, really is enough. And so we're going to start that today by exploring the background for how the people of God in the Old Testament get a king in the first place. We're going to do it under two headings, the king that we want and the king that we need. So that's where we're going this morning. And the story begins to set the scene in a time of deep darkness for the people of God. God has rescued them out of slavery in Egypt He has committed himself to them through a covenant promise. He's brought them into a beautiful land, a land of abundance and blessing. 
But rather than live in the goodness of all that God has provided, the people have continually turned away. They've fallen into moral chaos and brokenness where everyone does what is right in their own eyes. That's the recurring theme of the book just before this one, The Judges. And yet, God was faithful to them in their faithlessness. He raises up leaders called judges to rescue and restore the people. But the pattern that happens again and again is that the judge dies and they fall back into brokenness and misery. They refuse to live by God's ways. They cut against the grain of his creation, which always leads to splinters. Splintered morality, splintered relationships, splintered communities. And the book of Samuel begins in a moment like that, a moment of anguish as a woman who had been bullied and persecuted and looked down on by her society comes to pray. And she comes to pray at the spiritual center of the nation at that point. This is a woman called Hannah. And as Hannah pours her heart out, the state of the nation is revealed as the high priest at the time mistakes her for being drunk because heartfelt, passionate prayer is so off the agenda at that point. Like prayer is so alien to the people of God that the high priest themselves can't recognize it when they see it. This is not a good state of affairs. Hannah cries out to God and God answers her prayer. He works a miracle to enable a son, Samuel, to be born. And in response, she sings this incredible prophetic song all about how God will stand against those who are proud but lift up those who are humble. About how even in the mess of human relationships and human frailties, God is working out his plans and his purposes. And about how one day God will raise up an anointed king to save and lead his people. And this is the moment of catalyst for transformation and renewal of the nation. And it comes from a woman who everyone else had looked down on, kneeling in prayer before God. There are many different portraits of leaders in the book of Samuel, but I think Hannah, faithful in prayer, earnest in devotion, bold in proclamation, is surely one of the most significant. Her song foreshadows that of another woman hundreds of years later, Mary, who we looked at just before Christmas, another mother to a supernaturally conceived son who sings in a moment of crisis for the nation about how God is inaugurating a new kingdom. And if you have time this week, maybe take a look at those two songs. You can find them in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 2 and uh, in the Gospels because they introduce some of the key themes that we'll come to see more of over the next few months in the lives of both David and Jesus. The lifting up of the humble, the work of God even in the darkness, and the coming king who changes everything. And so that's the context as we come to the passage that Rebecca so excellently read out for us, 1 Samuel chapter 8. Samuel has been leading God for many years, but he's growing old, Uh, As if you noticed in the reading, the people were not shy in saying to him, Samuel, you're growing old. We need something new. And his sons are not walking in his ways. They're corrupt. 
and selfish. Darkness and chaos are threatening again. The pattern looks like it's going to repeat. So the people come to Samuel and they ask for a king to lead them instead. Now, on one hand, that request is tapping into the history of the Israelite people. Way back in the book of Genesis, in the teaching of Moses as well, there's been a promise that one day the nation would have a king to lead them. That's always been God's design for his people. The problem is their reasoning. If you have a Bible with you, look down to verse 7. The people aren't asking for a king because one has long been foretold and they think this is the moment. They're asking for a king because they've rejected God's leadership. They want to set someone up over them, not to model God to them and represent them before God as a true king would do, but to replace him. And Samuel warns them that if they choose to go down this road, God will give them what they want but they'll begin to undo everything good that he's wanting to do amongst them. The king they want will have unexpected consequences. I wonder if you've ever been in a situation where you've been desperate for something, absolutely desperate, and then you get it, but it ends up not quite going how you'd hoped, not quite working out as you'd wanted it to. Let me tell you about a relationship uh, between a couple called Arthur and Iris. And Arthur and Iris meet, and they fall for one another, head over heels. They make declarations of love to one another. They commit themselves to one another, not just now, but forever. And then the unthinkable happens. Barely a couple of days later, a guy called Frankie shows up, And he woos Iris with flowers and promises. And that's that. She's off with Frankie. She's done with Arthur. And he's heartbroken. He'd gotten everything he'd hoped for. And it had all fallen to pieces in the blink of an eye. Now, given that Arthur is four, uh, and he's a character in a show called The Secret Life of Four-Year-Olds, I'm fairly certain that he's going to get over it in time. The unexpected consequences of Israel's desire for a king were a little bit more severe than that. Samuel lays them out in verses 11 to 18. He gives them warnings that the king they want will reverse everything that God has done for them across the big story of the whole Bible. That's quite severe consequences, I'd say. That where God has given them land, land will be taken where he's rescued them from the chariots and slave masters of Egypt, chariots and slave masters will encircle them again. The clock will be turned all the way back to Eden, where the king, like humanity in the beginning, takes and takes and takes. Have a look at that section. See how many times the word take is used. It's what happens in the start. Humanity takes and everything falls apart. The consequence is separation, separation from abundance, separation from God, separation from life itself. But even hearing this, the people still decide they want a king. And they give three reasons for this in verse 20. They want a king to one, be like the nations, to two, judge them, and to three, 
fight their battles. First of all, they want a king to be like the nations. And ever since Mount Sinai, where God makes a covenant with his people and commits himself to them, the Israelites had been marked out as God's own people, a nation where they would be his people and he would be their God to demonstrate to the nations of the world God's greatness and his goodness, that people would look at the Israelites and see the God of Israel and see how good he is. The goal was always that they would image their creator to the world. But instead, they'd become envious of other nations who seemed on the surface more impressive. Their armies seemed better equipped. Their governments seemed more effective. Above all, their leadership seemed more extraordinary. They had kings, and their kings got stuff done. And God gives the people what they want. In the years ahead, he allows them to become like the nations around them. But it comes with the unexpected consequences of forsaking their place as God's covenant people, of bearing the image of the world rather than the image of God. And because of that, becoming just another group of tribes to be conquered by the powerful empires of the day. Secondly, they ask for a king to judge them, someone who will deliver justice, who will lead and decide and act with fairness when they feel that they've been wronged. But don't forget that the people asking this are the leaders of the day. And we've already seen that their motivations are not entirely pure. Their goal is to take God off the throne. Ultimately, what they're looking for is someone who will deliver more of the same for them, the people in power, the people with standing and authority in the community, a king to create and uphold power structures which enable the influential to remain in control. And God gives them what they want. He gives them a king to judge them, but it comes with the unexpected consequences that the kings and their descendants do create power structures which enable the influential to remain in control but which only benefit themselves as the royal family and not anyone else. And finally, they ask for a king to fight their battles. The author of Samuel has deliberately chosen to place this story in chapter 8, directly after an incredible story in 1 Samuel chapter 7, where the Philistines, Israel's arch enemy during this period, raise an army to attack them, but Samuel leads the people in praise and worship and God delivers them, amazingly, miraculously. He confuses and terrifies and scatters the Philistine army such that the Israelites don't even have to fight. All they have to do is chase the Philistines away. And there's a deep irony being communicated that the very next story after God fights their battle for them has the Israelites coming to ask for a king to fight their battles for them. And yet... God gives them what they want. He gives them a king to fight their battles. But it comes with the unexpected consequences that their kings do win some great victories, but they ultimately lead to Israel's defeat because the people don't know how to live with the fruit of victory, one like that. Instead, they become obsessed with power 
and wealth, racked by division and civil war, and ultimately defeated and divided and carried off into exile. God gives the people the kings they want with all their unexpected consequences. And yet, and yet, this story is ultimately one of hope. It's one of hope because even in the midst of that, God is still working. That's the message of this book and this story. Even in the frailty of human pride and human choices, God is working to pave a way for the king that he always intended them to have. Not the king that we want, but the king that we need. And we're going to see some echoes of that king in the life of David. But ultimately, whilst in their earthly kings, God gives the people what they want, but it comes with unexpected consequences. It's in Jesus, the true king, that God gives all people what we need, but it comes in unexpected ways. As Hannah's song has prophesied, the true king, rather than seeking to imitate the nations of the world, will declare that his kingdom is not of this world. In other words, it's not like the nations. He inaugurates and extends it not by conquest, but by invitation, so that all people, no matter how far away, even us, 2,000 years later on a distant island might be welcomed in. Might hear the invitation we heard in worship to come on in. And he begins it in the most unexpected way. Arriving on the scene, not in the splendor of a royal palace, but the humility of a stable. Surrounded not by adoring officials, but by lowly cattle. Not in the seat of an empire's power, but in a backwater corner of a conquered people. The true king, rather than judging to preserve the positions of the elite, will overturn the power structures of the world. He'll speak a final word of judgment on systems which perpetuate oppression, power struggles, and corruption. And he'll do it in the most unexpected way, exalting the humble and rebuking the powerful, beginning his revelation and his revolution with the outcasts, the poor in spirit, the grieving, the unimportant, unnoticed, unsatisfied, persecuted outsiders that no one else gave a second thought to. The true king, rather than winning his victories over enemies on the battlefield, will triumph by conquering all the powers of darkness and sin and brokenness and death, a victory far greater than anyone could imagine. And he'll do it in the most unexpected way, in the laying down of a life on a lonely hill, a rugged cross, as nails are driven into his hands and his feet, and he bears in himself the weight of all that has gone wrong in the world, all the chaos, all the darkness, all the pain, all the suffering, every fractured relationship we find within ourselves and between us and God and between us and others. All of it laid on Jesus at the cross. All of it carried there, step by step, by him. And all of it put to death once and for all. A word spoken that it is finished 
The decisive victory has been won. Jesus has done it. And on the third day, the proof that he has begun the project of resurrection, which will one day fill the whole world with the fruit of that victory, which is peace and goodness and healing and light and life. And all of this frequently confused people in Jesus' day. It's still frequently confusing people in ours. The people were expecting a king like the kings of the past. But Jesus doesn't do any of the things that they expect him to do. Because he's not a king like the king they asked for. He's not the king we want. But he is the king that we need. And you know, I know that's especially true for me. My heart is so often like that of the people coming to Samuel to ask for a king. So often wrapped up in wanting to be like someone else because they seem to have it all together. And if I just had that or that or that, everything would fall into place. There are so many moments in my life where I feel like what I want from God is a king like the king of the nations. I want him to stride into my life looking all impressive. I want him to judge by instituting power structures that leave me in control. I want him to fight my battles simply by snapping his fingers and ridding me of the challenges in my life. That's the king I so often want. But my experience of Jesus more and more is that he is the king I need precisely because he does things in the most unexpected way. When I'm living in 1 Samuel 8, and I've already forgotten 1 Samuel 7, I need to hear again and again that he's not the king that I saw from one, but he is the king I need. And maybe that's just me, but maybe it's not. Maybe you two are living looking for the king you want rather than the king you need. Maybe there are areas in your life where you're asking God to do things your way rather than being open to his unexpected leading. If so, the best news in the world is that Jesus isn't the kind of king who takes and takes and takes, but who gives and gives and gives again all that we need who because of his great love for us gave of his very self on the cross gave of his resurrection life gave of the spirit which doesn't lead to slavery and fear but to its adoption as beloved children and gives of himself even now to bid you come and receive come and receive and as we explore these stories together over the next few months, it's my hope and my prayer that whatever is going on in our lives, we will come to see, as we've looked at so often over the last few months, that Jesus really is enough. That when we're exhausted from caring for a loved one, we're stressed about upcoming exams or we're under pressure from a big deadline at work or we're battling physical or mental health challenges 
or we're grieving a friend, or we're struggling with a hidden desire, or we're just feeling done in by life right now, we will find that God's heart is to meet us, is to meet you in the midst of your situation, is to enable you to know that he is with you and that he is working in your life and in the person of Jesus Christ, the finished work of the true king changes everything, changes everything. That's what I hope we're going to see together in the coming months. Does that sound good? Are we ready to get stuck into the life of David? Before we do that, I want to invite us to respond. I want to invite us that if anything I've said this morning has kind of resonated with you, there are any areas in your life where you know you just need Jesus to be the king that he is rather than the king you were wanting him to be, this is an opportunity to come. And so I'd invite you, if you're able, uh, to stand. Let's stand together. I'm going to pray. I'm just going to ask God to come and meet with us again in this moment. Rolling Stones put it like this. You can't always get what you want, but if you try, you might just find you get what you need. I tried and tried and tried in my life. I found that Jesus is all that I need. And he has given himself for me and he's given himself for you. And so Jesus, we come in this moment and we thank you that you are not a king like the king of the nations that you are not a king like the king the world holds up as an exemplary example of leadership. You're not a king who's out to bring control. You're not a king who wins his battles through cruelty. You are a king who is good and who is kind and who loves and gives by laying yourself down. And Jesus, you're the king who even now invites us to draw near and receive from all that you have already done, all that you have already won. on the cross and at the empty tomb. Lord, I pray that you would be stirring our hearts even now to the areas in our life where we have consciously or unconsciously been disappointed and dissatisfied by the kind of king that you are, where we've sought to make you into the kind of king that we want you to be. 
And Jesus, I pray, as you always do, would you be gently and faithfully and kindly calling us back to the wonder of who you are and the beauty of what you want to do in our lives. And Jesus, this morning we come, arms open, and we receive again of you, our King, the King that we need.